Episode 27 of the Romantic About Baseball podcast. I am your host this evening, Adam McKinnon, and I am joined by a, uh, a guy I'm a, I'm a fan of, uh, Chris Domino, uh, Braves pregame radio personality down here in Atlanta, 680 The Fan. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for coming on. That's no problem. I hope everybody's having a good evening. Absolutely. Now, and uh, I'm I am particularly, and anyone that that's in the Atlanta area is, uh, and I'm sure shares my excitement to have you on because, you know, we're going to talk a little bit later about uh, your your hardball uh, podcast, the the project that you've been putting out lately. Um, but I kind of wanted to just kind of get right into it and ask you what I ask a lot of my guests: um, what's your what's your baseball origin story? Where where is square one in, in the in baseball for you? Yeah, so born in Brooklyn, raised in Staten Island. Uh, my mom and dad dated at Ebbets Field. So I come from a wow. New York National League uh, family. Now, I had relatives in Brooklyn and the Bronx and Queens. My mom was from Queens. So there were Yankee people in there, but they were a Dodger family. And when the Dodgers moved, there was no way my dad was going to root for the Yankees. There was no way he was going to root for the Dodgers in Los Angeles. So we, we, they waited around uh, for the Mets to be born, and I was born one year after the Mets. So it was kind of strange. Uh, I went to my first game in 63 at the Polo Grounds at about eight months. Wow. And then the next year they took me to Shea Stadium. And it was, you know, six years old, the first baseball memories I actually have of the 69 World Series with the Mets and following that team in the 70s and and being a Met fan through the 80s uh, until I basically moved down to Atlanta and started to form some relationships here. But, but I was like a 10-year-old who knew everything about the Brooklyn Dodgers. It's a, it's a little strange. It's not much of a skill set. It's not really <laughs> going to get you very far. Uh, but, but I knew really a lot about the Dodgers from the 40s and 50s as a, as a fairly young kid in the early 70s. And a, lo- a lot of respect for the game, but a lot of respect for just – being able to have conversations with uncles and cousins about baseball. It was sort of the, you know, we joke, I had an uncle, Nick, who was basically in charge of where you sat at Thanksgiving dinner. He determined whether you sat with the adults or you sat with the kids. And it was a lot like baseball. You could be sent back down to the minor leagues. My brother got sent down in the middle of a Thanksgiving dinner. He gravitated (laughs) towards the adult table. My uncle, Nick, threw him back down at double A. And said, "Go sit with, go sit at the card table with the kids. Go work on your said, defense." <laughs> yeah, he, he must have said something not too bright, but it was a big deal, and a lot of those conversations were centered around sports, but baseball more than any. And so, when I would, I would be very interested to hear your perspective on it. So, you know, you grew up a Brooklyn Dodgers fan. Do you remember when the, you know, when the when the Dodgers left Brooklyn to LA? Do you have do you have memories of, of that? No. So that was 6, you know, they finished in Oh, that's right. That was 57. Yeah. That's so right. Okay. We, we were a med house. Like I grew up so you know, a couple of the old Brooklyn Dodgers came back to play for the Mets in 62 and 63. Mm-hmm. You know, Hodges ends up manager in the year they win the World Series in 69. So that was a big deal. Duke Snyder played for the New York Mets. Like nobody knows that. But he came back, and the Mets were just trying to create, you know, I think a lot of people probably know the story. The Mets' colors are the blue of the Dodgers and the orange of the Giants. So they were trying to garner this National League interest as much as possible right out of the gate. And I think there were a lot of people who were in the same boat as my family. They were never going to root for the Yankees. Uh, So when the Mets, again, played the first two years in the Polo Grounds before they moved to Shea in 64, uh, again, my first memories are the 69... I'm going to tell you something. Education was a big thing in my, my, you know, you didn't miss school. It's not that any of us turned out overly intelligent, but you didn't miss school. <laughs> but opening day, uh, WOR, 
Like my dad let me stay home a couple of opening days when I was a kid to watch the opening, you know, of a Mets season, which wow. is just, I think about it now, and it's sort of one of those, if you're going to have roots and truly have them sort of deeply implanted in you, your ability at eight or nine to stay home from school. That's like a big and, deal. And watch, and watch a Met game. It's, it's, it's pretty incredible. So, so you go from New York uh, to Atlanta. Um, it, it, tell me what it's like, because um, you know anyone who listens, you know, listens to you or anything like that. Like, you know, did you go through a sort of adoption process with the Braves? Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. like how what was that like? So very much so. So, so I was a caller. Uh, I came down to Atlanta to go to Life College, chiropractic school, mm-hmm. thinking I was going to move back to New Jersey and be a chiropractor. I went back to Rutgers at like 30 years old. And by the way, you parents out there, you probably know this college isn't meant, meant for 18-year-olds. It's meant for 30-year-olds who are paying their own way. Right. And you've taken 18 and 21 credits because every dime matters uh, when you go back to school as an adult. But yes, when, when I moved down here, look, I, I will readily admit that I certainly have my Met roots. Mm-hmm. Uh, but after a couple of few years, and it was really the 95 World Series certainly helped. I got to know it became personality driven. It became about having relationships with guys and the teams. And I never, I didn't falsely wave Braves pom poms early. Right. And there was a moment in 99, it's funny when Chipper won the MVP, and we joke about it now. He kicked the crap out of the Mets that September. Yeah. And I had a bunch <laughs> of my friends from up there giving me nonsense. And I was like, you know what? It's over, fellas. I've seen a World Series. I get a credential. They let me into the building for 81 games. Uh, I'm a Braves fan. Yeah, man. And the relationship part of it became a really, really big thing for me over the years. Trying to cover the game again without wearing Braves pom-poms or waving them around. But I just got to know way too many people, including the people who ran the team front office-wise and certainly the people uh, on the field. And, And at a certain point, I lost my Met card. And a couple of my buddies let me know, but, <laughs> you know, it wasn't even you got to do what you got to do. It was just how do you actually not root for the team that hands you the Christmas present of all Christmas presents? Right. With a credential to basically go into every nook and cranny and have opportunities to speak to people at two and three in the afternoon, four hours before anybody else comes into the building. It's it becomes a pretty easy thing at that point. What a, was there a personality from those teams that that sticks out to you in particular? Was there was there one guy that was just like, man, I can't wait to talk to this guy. Oh, look, it's you know, it's almost it's twenty six years now, so there have been a lot of them. I was I was scared of Charlie O'Brien. You looked in his locker room <laughs> in, in Fulton County Stadium, right? And he had pictures just of everything him and his brother had shot with a gun or a bow and arrow. Yeah, was fascinating. Um, you know, West Palm Beach in spring training was so low-key back then. I, I joke, you you stepped over a chain-link fence, and you were in West Palm's facility. Like, that was the entrance. Right. You just parked your car and stepped over, so there was no rules. So just having an opportunity at 7 o'clock, 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning to get to know guys. And, you know, and all of a sudden you start to realize, well, it's Tom Glavin guy. I'd heard about him, but, you know, he wasn't that good. First couple of years, John Smoltz wasn't very good. I didn't. I wasn't here for ninety one, ninety two, but I remember watching those series on TV. So I sort of walked in knowing a little bit about them. I know they hadn't won the World Series in those two attempts, uh, so I knew the history of it. But just I'll just say this: John Smoltz gave me something really interesting. It was probably my second year. I covered the team. I was still going to college full time. I was still going to Life College, and in ninety six, WSB, a big station here in town, who had the Braves, right. Asked me if I wanted to go cover him in spring training. And I thought that meant like for a weekend or a week. I was like, hell yeah, I'll go. No, they wanted me to stay down for the whole seven weeks. So I ran to school as a student in good standing. Three years in, $50,000 worth of chiropractic education. I said, I'll be back. And I never went back. Wow. Smoltz told me something really interesting. He said, you know, if, you, if you're here every day, you can say what you want on the radio. Sports talk radio was a new thing in town. It literally. Literally, it started in 1993. That's the year I moved here, and I started in September 93. So guys were listening. They were curious, but he sort of said, don't ask me about him. Go ask him about him. If you follow that rule more than any, and if you say something, and you should at least garner some respect. So I put those in my back pocket, and I sort of tried to live by that. You know, if I won't say it to you, I won't say it about you. Right and and showing up at the ballpark for seventy five games a year for that first ten years and I mean I was there seventy five nights a year, 
you get a little bit of leeway that some of the other people don't necessarily get. Man, that's and you know it, it's interesting that level of access. You just don't you don't see that anymore, and you know especially you know and what interests me. Yeah, right. It's totally different. And what interests me about your story even more so, like, if I'm correct, you were brought into this whole gig, like, without any previous, like, radio experience. Yeah, no, I was a bartender. The guy who hired me, as a matter of fact, came down from Philly. He said, if you forget you're a bartender, I'll fire your ass really quickly. (laughs) He said, that's the guy. Like, you can talk football and basketball, and here's the Nick fan, and here's the Net fan, and here's the Ranger or Islander fan. When you're a bartender, and listen, I grew up in study halls, and I grew up flipping baseball cards and making trades with baseball cards. So I certainly had that stuff. Um, but yeah, the, the the crazy thing is, somebody asked me it was just a few weeks ago, hey, what's the biggest difference? I said, well, I'll give you one of them. I don't know if it's the biggest. I used to sit around and have beers with guys after games, and we talk about the game. Right. You'll never look. It's not a knock. You know, you're you got a beer, I got a beer right here in my That's hand. right. But we'll never happen again. I don't think is. Is the sitting down afterwards. I mean, I think about this. Glavin Smoltz, Chipper, Bobby Cox, who was incredible to me, Leo Mazzoni, Glenn Hubbard. Uh, Glenn Hubbard and I used to have some incredible conversations at 3 o'clock in the afternoon before anybody else was in there. We'd sit at the dugout. Now, there's some of that that goes on, but certainly not as much. And then just post-game, when a guy would say, hey, man, pull up a chair, grab a beer, and let's just we either talk about the game or talk about stuff. And, and I wasn't, maybe what helped me is I wasn't 21 or 22. Uh, I was in my 30s. I right. think they understood that I was there for a reason. I was working it. But I, I don't know if I'll ever really post-game in a locker room, sit down and have a beer with a guy. And it led to relationships like going to guys' 40th birthdays. And, and my wife threw me a surprise 40th. And a bunch of those guys were there. And Hall of Fame induction ceremonies and retirements and congratulations when kids are born and I, a lot of that was because of the time having the time to to really get to know guys and, and have those hour-long conversations that you know guys probably don't want to have now they got other stuff going on in their life right right now there had to be it couldn't have all been smooth sailing coming in with no prior experience you know what? Uh, what were some of the hardest lessons you learned from the from the jump? Like things that guys that went to school for this maybe knew, but but you're just you know you're coming on this. You're a walk on. You know how, what were some things that you learned early on? Not ignorant, but not. I think I'd always dealt with. I'm not lying. I dealt with adults really well as a young as a kid. I was able to shake a hand, look people in the eye. Uh, I I tell my kids I have two daughter 16 and 14 sure i'd like you to be book smart but but you're probably better off being street smart and i had i had that and i'll tell you something i made a conscious decision early on uh i've never ever 26 years and i swear to you on my kids four eyes i've never burned anybody on an off the record situation right and i've gotten in trouble with my bosses because i've known things about injuries and surgeries and uh, not to go into too much detail, but I was—I found out the Braves were for sale uh, when Liberty bought them, right? Earlier than, than anybody, and it was—that's a big was, piece uh, of no, info to sit on. Yeah, that's a big piece of info to sit on. <laughs> yeah. So, and I did. So I, I told it on the air. I contacted Terry McGurk, and I said, you know, he—he he knew that I knew, and he asked me. He said said, look, there are a lot of people around here who don't know this is happening. Can I ask you to sit on it? Like, I said, yes, if we only 48 hours. And, and and it was one of those where I think I, I garnered some respect because I didn't want to burn people. I thought it was legit that people shouldn't hear it on the radio or read about it in the paper right. to some degree. Um, but, it, but it was a really conscious decision. You know, again, I knew about that where guys were going in free agency. I knew when contracts were not going, negotiations were not going well. I knew when guys were going to have surgeries. And, I, and again, my bosses would get mad at me a couple of times. They said, you guys don't seem to understand. If a guy is telling you this, it's because he, he trusts you. But there's something more coming down the road. I could walk into the clubhouse and, and people would know that, okay, you don't have to stop talking. Or as a matter of fact, here, let's. 
let me explain something to you. You know, I had front office conversations and player conversations. I think a lot of times guys in the media get burned because they become sort of the conduit that the team or the agent wants them to be. Right. And they give you this story that's just their spin. And it's an agenda-driven story. And I sort of made it known pretty early, I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm not going to be your toady or flunky. And I think the way that you avoided that, the way that I avoided that and didn't have to pay that price was I just didn't burn anybody on the front end. They gave me real information. And if I had a question about, hey, I don't understand this. Why are you guys doing this? I actually got real answers instead of fake answers. Right. It's almost like, and, and and I wonder sometimes, like, in your situation, like, you're coming into it, you know, you're you're just so you know, you're doing a job, but you're also like, so, you know, excited to be there. It's like the discretion level has no to go up. You know, you, I'm, I'm here now. I can't believe I'm here. I can't, you know, I'm not going to do that to mess this up. Right. Yeah. So it wasn't like the, the, I can't believe it part was for a guy who didn't go to a ton of games. Right. You know, when I did my bike through three rows from the top and the idea that they would come into town and I can, we can go to a game and sit, you know, Section 107 in the old stadium with Walter Banks, um, who everybody probably knows is oh, a yeah. man who was born born on the spot where they built Fulton County Stadium. I mean, I watched hundreds of games with Walter from 107, not in the press box. Now, once in a while, somebody would say, hey, I don't know if you're supposed to be sitting there, but I, but I probably got away with it because I was sitting watching the game. You know, the press box, I wanted to root. I did. I, you know, I knew when you couldn't do things, but it's the press box is great when you're doing that type of job. I never really on the radio thought that that was my job. I thought my job was to sort of be a conduit or an extension of the fans, and I respected it. But if I'm sitting in a seat, somebody hits a three-run homer, I'm allowed to look at a guy that I don't even know and give him a high five. Not because I'm I'm not a media guy, but because I was there to talk about the game the next day on the radio like like a fan as opposed to, you know, let me tell you what happened in the third inning. Let right. me tell you what happened in the fourth inning. I never thought the job was that. Right. No, that's that's awesome. Um, I want to ask you one more question before we go to break. Yeah. Um, you know, there's one thing that really kind of you know uh, struck me about um, about you is that you you embody something called the that you you call the the bartender mentality. Can can you explain yeah. to uh, to can you explain what that means to you? Well, I know what it means to me. Um, you're. You appreciate, like you said, you appreciate the fact that you've been given this opportunity. You appreciate the fact that you're in a position that you never thought you'd be in. Um, you appreciate and don't lose fact. You know, I joke, I get seven or eight credentials a year, and I told my kids, that's my adult Christmas. They're giving <laughs> me a pass to go to things. Now, you know, I, I used to go to every Georgia Tech home basketball game and football game, but then life gets in the way and kids and everything else. So I, I'm not saying the numbers are the same. Um, but I, but I think the appreciation of having the ability to talk to the executive, the guy who's a suit, having the ability to talk to the clubhouse guy, uh, the guys who are, you know, we call them bat boys, but some of them are, are, are closer to men. You know, right. your ability to build relationships with these guys. The bartender mentality to me has always been, hey, don't be, a, you know, don't be a phony, don't be a jerk. And if somebody does you solid, make sure you know it and you, and you maybe even speak about it. Um, but at the end of the day, the off the record stuff and, and your ability. If, and look, I was critical at times. You know, mm -hmm. I was absolutely critical at times. Showing up the next day, to me, that that's what that job was. You don't stay away for five days hoping somebody would forget about it. Right. You know, that to me was pretty important. And, and I think that, that sort of encompasses what I would call. And it's funny, again, the guy who hired me said it. If you forget where you came from or why I hired you, you'll be gone. Right. Uh, and I, and I kind of knew exactly what he meant by that. If you all of a sudden become the guy who doesn't want to go to games, and it's not for everybody, or the, the guy who doesn't want to you know, make a phone call that's going to be a little bit difficult, then, again, everybody has their own way of doing it. But I, I always just thought that a little bit more direct and having a relationship with somebody, a real like a real relationship. I call them baseball friends. You know, there are some guys who I'm truly friendly with, but I, Cal Ripken, like, is a baseball friend. And there were Bobby Cox was sort of, but it was, he was a baseball friend. And I think you only get that when people believe that, that you care about the game, you're excited to be there, you're not jaking it, you're not mailing it in, 
And at the end of the day, it's important that you get it more right than wrong on many, many more days. Sure. And, and you got to be, and you, you really do. I, one thing that I always appreciated about your approach to that and, and to the bartender mentality is to be informed. You know, a lot of times, uh, you know, the bartender, you know, from depending on where you live, you know, uh, I was a bartender in Miami and it was, you were, you were the news to some people, you were the source, you know, to, for yes. not, not to, not to blab everything all over town, but to facilitate conversation and to kind of you know and you gotta listen yeah exactly everybody's got an equal stake in the conversation and that's one thing that i have always i've always gone making sure that uh uh, i've gone out of my way to make sure that people know like that's one thing that i can appreciate about that mentality and especially the way you explain it so i can definitely appreciate that um we're gonna we're gonna take a quick break and uh when we come back i really i'm i'm so excited to talk to you about the project that you've got coming up the hardball podcast um we'll be right back And we're back. Um, so I'm here with uh, Chris Domino. Um, he is the uh, he's a radio personality down here in in uh, 680 The Fan, uh, Braves pregame in the Atlanta area. But I have him on today not just to talk about that, but also to talk about uh, his latest latest uh, podcast, his latest project, if you will. Um, it's it's called Hardball. And, uh, Chris, I, I want to just kind of defer to you, like what, tell people who don't already know, what is the hardball podcast? Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a 20 year overnight idea. Um, <laughs> it, it literally, it's it, their firsthand, this is the, the way that I sort of explained it. I had said no for a long time to doing the whole podcast thing, because like a lot of people, I said, ah, there's, there's two, there's no, it's not too many. But there are a lot. There are a lot of smart people doing it, and there are a lot of people who are doing it well. And I'm not really sure that I want to fight to try to pick up my little piece of that scrap. I'll let other people, and I do enjoy it. You know, I'm a listener, so I right. I, I have interest outside of the world of sports, and I, I'm a big podcast listener, but I just thought there were enough. I think maybe that's what it was. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you what happened. Um and these are first-hand conversations that started almost 20 years ago now, 2001. Uh, I, I did something on terrestrial radio. They were long-form interviews ever be- before they were ever known as podcasts. But really what they were were a pain in the ass for a program director. He's like, what am I going to do with 18 minutes, 21 minutes? We don't have a place for that. So Matt Egger, a guy who's still my producer now, we were countering the Braves' real pregame show. You know, Skip Carey and, you know, Skip, tell me about the infield fly rule and all the other things that came with the pregame show. We said, let's do a shorter version uh, of that. And the shorter version started to grow into an hour version. And a big part of it was these these firsthand conversations. And, and again, we talked about mentality earlier. The other thing that I was really, really big on, I don't like the word interview right. at all. I don't, I don't like Q&A. I don't like it sounds like depositions. <laughs> and, I, and I've never written down a question. I've written down a couple of notes to make sure that I got the things. That, but you, you do your reading, you do your research, you grab whatever you can. But I've always thought if you write down eight questions, you're so desperate to get to number six. After number five, you're never going to listen. So I said it's not for me. If there's a legal issue, uh, we have an attorney on or somebody's got to explain something, no doubt. That's Q&A. That's I need a fact. Right. To me, these were always going to be conversations. So just quickly, the reason I decided to do it, uh, I run a clip for the first time in ooh, 17 years of a, of a conversation I have with Stan Musial. We mm-hmm. played about 10 minutes of it on a Saturday morning show that I, did with Mark, I do with Mark Lemke. Later yes. on that day, a 42-year-old guy, he told me how old he was. That's how I know. Uh, he said, I had never heard Stan Musial speak. And I said... I said, well, I guess that makes sense. Why would a 42-year-old guy hear Stan Musial speak? Right. And the way he talked about it, he just said, God, it was just amazing to hear him. I know who he is. I know the numbers. I'm a, the guy was a self-proclaimed big baseball fan, but he'd never heard Stan Musial speak. And he never knew that Stan Musial was signed as a pitcher. That was part of the conversation. Hurt his arm, and then he becomes Stan Musial, the everyday player, one of the greatest hitters ever. So then I said, okay, well, there's probably a good amount of that. And I started to think about some of the archive you know, conversations that I had, and, and that would probably hold true for Dukes, 
Snyder and Phil Rizzuto and Whitey Ford and Ted Williams. And, and I finally said, okay, I'm going to do this. And I, I got a guy who works with us named Keith Ippolito, who's just really good in the editing. We both have a similar ear to do the openings and the closings. It's amazing how many guys who played in the 40s and 50s and even the 60s had songs written about them. Right. So you can go find them. You go find the Hall of Fame induction speeches to sort of sandwich uh, the conversation itself. And, and and then it started. And Sam Usual, because of that story, was the first one that we put out. And we just put out 13 this week with Nolan Ryan, right. who everybody said he's a quiet... Nolan Ryan told me two days before we did it. This was 2002. I don't talk about myself. And then it's Alvin, Texas. By the way, he's a real cowboy. He's not a drugstore cowboy. Right. He said, and I don't think... I swear to God, I remember it like it was yesterday. He said... And I don't think I got much of a story. Well, 31 minutes later, I was like, uh, yeah. Yeah, you do. You do. <laughs> and, and that was sort of the impetus. And and the whole goal is to have these guys, because some of them were older. Like, I interviewed, I, I've, con- I've had conversations with guys who played in the 30s. And they were, at a, they were at a landline. I'm assuming it's one of those corded phones on a wall in the kitchen. Right. And he's sitting at a kitchen table or in a in a, a recliner. And the whole goal, and I think you've probably known this too, when you speak to somebody and you go, wow, they're leaning forward when, they, when you want them to because they're getting excited about a story they haven't told or something they, they hadn't th- thought of in 30 years. And then they sit back and relax. And that's sort of my thing is I don't want it to sound like it's a phone conversation i want it to sound like it's a couple of baseball friends having a conversation that we're absolutely letting anybody who wants to eavesdrop on it in on it right it's it's not a ton of numbers and details it's about players moments uh the good of it the not good of it the winning the world series the losing the world series and and you just if done fairly well you can hear when a guy is going to going to give you more than he thought he was going to give you before that phone call came right and to to fill some folks in like these are just i just i just wrote down a quick list of names of of some of your guests i mean bo jackson stan musial vin scully i love vin's interview because right at the end he leads it off with just like all right i've got to go do a game but i guess i got a little bit of time Um, yeah he was in the press box right uh george brett that one from the press box mike schmidt phil rizzuto al kaline monty irvin i mean you know and of course, you know, uh, I'll ask you about another one in particular that I'm really excited about later. But um, one of the things that I've noticed is, uh, you know, like you said, and, and the one in, with Mike Schmidt in particular, I feel like you really did bring out a lot from Mike, more than Mike Schmidt was probably prepared to give when the conversation started. Do you, is this something where you said you don't take a lot of notes, uh, or excuse me, you don't, you don't prepare questions, but like, is this something where you, you're just vibing the conversation the whole way through? You're just kind of like, okay, like yeah. I feel like I can dig here. Is there is there a sort of, like, is there a method to it, or is it just you know you're totally um, in the moment? You know, it's it's interesting. I, I'll give you just two quick stories with Brett. Right as I stopped running, it, he was at a game. He's he's literally at a game in Kansas City in a suite, the owner suite. And he gives me 25 minutes. Um, the Rizzuto one took a year and a half to get done, like to, to book. Phil was 83 turning 84, and he had thought he was, I don't do this anymore. I, I don't. Whitey Ford was the guy who told Rizzuto, when I tell the story in the opening, he said, do the thing with the Italian guy in Atlanta. You'll enjoy it. Right. And that's how Rizzuto's son called me back and said, well, if Whitey Ford says, then dad. And, and but Phil Rizzuto's son said, "Ah, oh, he doesn't really, you know, do this stuff anymore." Thirty-five minutes later, and he's telling stories of, like that went back to the '40s and '50s, and being in the cage, and you know, being as small as he was, and these guys looking at him, going, "How he wasn't allowed." Joe DiMaggio, there was a guy at the gate who didn't believe Rizzuto was a member of the Yankees, and it's Joe DiMaggio who says he's with me, plays with us, bring him in, and you start <laughs> to hear stories like this, and he's laughing. But credit was, I stopped the tape. And he said, I was about to say, George, I want to thank you. He said, hey, man, thanks. And I was like, oh, I was just about to thank you. He said, no, no, no pine tar, no hemorrhoids. And when a guy realizes that you're not going for the cheapest pine tar, hemorrhoids, um, 
You know, you're not pulling the Chris Farley very often. But hey, man, do you remember when you were in the '55 World Series? Right. I think if you avoid that stuff, these guys maybe have Johnny Roseboro, who a lot of people might not know, except for the Marischal incident, was fascinating to talk to about the tech. You know, um, the ability to call a game as a catcher. He caught two of Koufax's no hitters. And he was a much better player beyond just the Marischal incident. Right. When a guy like that says, "Hey, man, you're thinking like a catcher." Then all of a sudden, he, I know he's going to give me another 15 minutes. Like, for a fact, he's going to give me 15 more minutes and or, and not even look at the clock. He's just, I think there was an appreciation that you're you're talking or thinking like, like a catcher. And right. when you hear stuff like that with Schmidt, you know, when you have an interest in, you know that where he went to college and he wasn't a guy who got recruited out of high school. When you know that stuff, I think there's a, a better shot that it doesn't turn into a, five questions and I got to go. It right. literally turns into that sit back in the seat and, and just have a conversation. Well, the, and you know, what was interesting to me was listening to the Bo Jackson interview. You know, you know, you were talking about how he was, a, you know, he, he was talking to you about how he uh, started as a catcher as a kid because, you know, yeah. if you, you sissies won't do it, then I will. You know what I mean? And right. and then he became a shortstop. Like, you know, I, I can't help but, but notice, like, I just feel like, you know, uh, you know, that these sorts of conversations, I feel like these guys don't get this type of conversation normally it, it's funny you say that i think that was like like when you when i was so i i just started to record more new mm. ones the crazy jim maloney was a guy who pitched for the reds mm-hmm. sam usual got his last hit off of jim maloney and and for those who don't know sam usual had 1315 hits at home 1315 hits on the road it's amazing he literally split it. Same at home. Well, Pete right. Rose is a rookie second baseman at his last hit went by. And Rose is the guy who brings the ball over to Musial because they're going to take him out of the game. Well, I spoke to Jim Maloney, who has other points in his career. He was the pitcher. But we talked about that. And I think he was so interested that somebody not only knew that, but, but wanted to speak to him. There's a guy named Jack Fisher and Tracy Stout who gave up you know, historical home runs, Maserowski's home run, right. Maris is 61st. And you might not know the names, but the stories, and I think I always appreciated the idea that somebody wants to talk to them still. This right. guy by the name of Eldon Auker, at some point I'm going to put this one out, maybe next month, played in the 30s for the Tigers. He was a pitcher. He pitched against Gehrig and Ruth. Mm. He's got a story about Luke Gehrig. When Luke Gehrig gets sick, he tells an incredible story about Hank Greenberg, who the anti-Semitism against Hank Greenberg was incredible, including from the other dugouts. So Eldon Auker, we talk about train rides and flannel uniforms, and he, I, ju- I just think some of these guys, the non-stars, uh, Tracy Stallard, I mentioned, is one of my favorites ever. He was a Virginia guy. He, was sent, he played for the 62 Mets for Casey. But he, he was the guy who gave up Maris so people go what that guy yeah that guy and when when people sort of again with baseball especially not being around there's a lot of binge watching going on right people watching as much television as possible like you know every series every streaming network so i'm trying to pitch these as a binge listen you know sit in a chair that you would sit in maybe or sit outside the, the way you would in your back porch without the games and maybe just hear stories that you never heard before from some people who names you know but others who you don't. Right. And it's interesting because it does, you know, when Mazeroski hit the home run in, in, in 1960, right, there were, there were, you know, nine other, there were, there were a lot of other guys on that field that weren't, you know, Yogi Berra and, and Ralph Terry, you know, and Ralph Terry right. and, and guys like that. So, like, what about their perspectives? And, and that's what I've, I've always been fascinated. Growing up, I was... Um, Growing up, my favorite player on the 90s Braves was Jeff Blauser. There, there's the the role yeah. players are just such yeah. an interesting thing to me. You know, Lemke Lemke was my was another favorite of mine because I grew up you know with yeah. glasses and played second base, and I just I didn't know you could wear glasses and play baseball until so, Lemke did. So here's the thing: everybody's got a guy or two. It's easy to love a star, right? You know, whether it was Cleon Jones on the Mets as opposed to Tom Seaver or. You know, Tommy Agee, Don Clendenin, uh, Al Weiss. Like, I know that 69 team like the back of my hand. There's a guy named Don Hahn and George Theodore who played for the Mets in 73 and when they were bad in the mid-70s. 
one of the episodes is is at Crane Pool and Boda. We do. I did an episode on the '69 right. Mets. But I'm, you know, Crane Pool was a 17 year old who was on the '62 Mets, the worst team in baseball history. 17, with Casey Stengel three feet away from you. So there's a story there. Ron Svoboda had one of the great catches. So we put those two guys together for about an hour's worth of conversation along with the highlights. So there'll be other episodes. I'm doing something with um, David Justice, Tim Hudson, and Ron Washington about the Moneyball Eights. We're going to do some – I'm doing a Hershiser to talk about the 88 season. So wow. we're going to do different types of episodes. They'll just be some guys who won Rookie of the Year or MVPs. We're just going to talk about that year. Right. And so those are the and, and so I did Joe Morgan recently. I did Bobby Richardson, who was on those Yankee teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carl Erskine, who was on the Brooklyn Dodgers teams, who went to L.A. with them. Right. Who was fascinating. Ninety something years old was just so sharp. Um, and I again, I had spoken to him before, but the fact that I called again and we just picked up, like we knew each other for a long period of time, is, is a really really nice feeling. You know, there and there, you you're obviously you've just had a ton of conversations with so many impactful players. You know, one thing there is one conversation I kind of want to ask you about, and, yeah. and it's only one that I've heard of. I've I've not actually heard the conversation itself. But what was it, asking about Ted Williams? Yeah, can you can you so that one was one of your more known like you know it's one of the more legendary yeah. ones can you tell can you fill us in about that yeah look other than Rizzuto that one took longer Ted Ted had not been as healthy at that point and I will tell you this is the last audio thing that he really did of any measure mm-hmm. and his son John Henry who's passed was getting married and it was his fiance was the one who really really helped me um I had spoken to Johnny Pesky, Bobby Dore, Dom DiMaggio before this. Mm-hmm. And I think that sort of helped me that with her. And, and I'm going to tell you exactly what happened. And again, it was about a year and a half. And he had good days and not so good days. And she called me a couple of days before and said, Ted is set. But she said, this could be three minutes, four minutes. Depends on what kind of day he's having. If, if he, you know, if it goes off. It'll just, it, it, it might not be a great day. We'll see. So I, I joke. I said, I was more sure about, you know, the night before I got married than I was the night before <laughs> I was going to call Ted Williams because I, I figured she was showing up. I wasn't right. so sure about Ted. <laughs> and, and we ended up, so the re- reason that people remember it is, look, I was, I've only been blown away, like, or, or, I got in my own head a little bit only a couple of times. It's Duke Snyder, who was my mom's favorite player. Um, mm-hmm. I've gotten to know Hank well, but the first time I spoke to Hank, it was a big deal. But the Ted thing, I, I knew that he wasn't doing very well, and, and I wasn't sh- sure what was going to happen. And the reason most we did 27 minutes, and at one point he asked me what my father did for a living, and we talked about, you know, just a few things. Like, he... he, he he admitted to me he wasn't a great father, uh, used bad language, mm-hmm. and it was just sort of. And, and he called me by the wrong name at one point, um, which, by the way, who gives it a, a holy rip? Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> but but we it, it was. I think the reason it was people he passed away really not much after that. And when people heard that, they were like, again. They'd heard maybe Ted Williams speak, or they knew the numbers, the 406, and uh, the, the piloting, you know, two wars. Uh, but we talked a little bit about how he got found, and, you know, he came from California where there was some good baseball being played in the San Diego area, but there was no professional baseball, obviously. And at one point, he just he asked me if my father gave me good advice uh, growing up, because he asked what my dad did. He was in the banking world. And that's right. when we started to talk about him as a father. He said, oh, I wasn't very good. And, again, one of the other things that was really poignant, tough guy. And I've spoken to Faye Vincent just last month. Faye got to know him and DiMaggio well and other guys. Right. Pesky Dorr, uh, DiMaggio. Reggie Smith, who I just taped one with, was with the Red Sox in 67. And he met Ted. So everybody's got a Ted story. Like, Ted, if, if you didn't want to work and hit, 
Ted didn't have much interest in you. Right. Ted could talk about hitting all day long. But the, the most poignant part was when, you know, we talked about the fishing. And, and he just said, he said there came a point where he couldn't stand in the stream, his eyesight, which was basically how he made a living and was Ted Williams. Right. 2010. Because his eyesight had gotten bad, he couldn't judge the horizon, which meant he couldn't balance himself in the stream. Now think about this. This guy fights in two wars. This guy is Ted Stinkin' Williams. <laughs> Teddy Ballgame. At a certain point, he comes to a realization. Right. The splinter. The kid. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of it. And he just, you could just hear his tone. He just, when, when a guy like that, Ted Williams, realizes, I can't fish anymore. And look, he liked fishing probably second only to baseball. We talked about being a Marine and how important that was. But I just, the, the part that really got me, and it was maybe one of the only times that was ever thrown, is when he just sort of, he brought it right back to the idea that he couldn't fish uh, because he couldn't he couldn't stand in the stream anymore. His health, his eyes yeah. didn't give him an ability to stand in the stream. I was like, oh, my God. Like the idea that cowboys, cowboys are cowboys forever, well, sometimes they're not. They get old. And I think that's what a lot, what struck a lot of people is the fact that he did it, and then the fact that it went for as long as it did, and he's asking me questions. But then I think the part that really stuck was just the idea that he, even Ted Williams was not going to go out as gracefully as, as you would hope that we all would go out after having a career and a life like that. Right, a, a guy at the, it's almost like you know, a guy at the top of his game. Well, he just stays there, doesn't he? I mean, you see the pictures of him. He's this, oh, right. this handsome guy, and he he just you know the way he swings and everything. Like it's just man, man. Yeah, exactly. False. He, was, he was a man. Right, he was a man's man with faults, mm -hmm. and he and he knew his faults. Right, like he he knew he had faults. Uh, it's it's crazy. Because I will just tell you very quickly, I'm so mad. I'm mad's a little bit strong. I lost some of these conversations. We had a an electrical search. It was a storm one day in Atlanta that blew out our computers at the at the radio station. I lost some of these interviews. I lost Catfish Hunter and I lost some guys. Never to be heard. We we couldn't figure out. They were burned. They were gone. Mm -hmm. But Tony Gwynn is my favorite non-Atlanta Brave ever. And every time San Diego came in, one of those days I'd go meet Tony two two thirty. Thank God I did one, did about thirty minutes where it's recording, so right. I have that. That'll be coming up too. Wow! But I had great conversations with him. The one that I'm mad about that I don't have with him is I was at, at the All Star game in 1999 when it was at Fenway, and that's the All Century team, and that's when Ted comes out in the golf cart, and Ted throws, you know, with Gwyn and McGuire telling him, "Come on, Ted." And Tony, who didn't work blue, gave me the blue version of what was being said at the mound as Ted threw that first pitch before that at 99 with the all-century team on the field. Now, think about that. The all-century team is on the field. Costner is reading all their names. And Ted Williams comes out in a golf cart, and he literally throws a strike. And Tony Gwynn told the greatest. He basically said, that's Ted Blank and Williams. That's what <laughs> Ted Blank and Williams is capable of doing. It was just incredible. But Tony's two feet away from it. If you ever watch it, and I, I beg everybody, go back and watch that moment where they're all around Ted, and it's McGuire and Gwynn telling him, go ahead. And Ted's just like, what, where, where's the catcher? Where is the guy? Can't see very well. And he throws a stinking strike. And I'll never, Tony Gwynn, who was a kid, great laugh anyway, we, he told him we laughed for five minutes in the dugout at uh, Turner Field talking about that moment that he had. And look, Tony Quinn had some great moments. Yeah. But Tony Quinn, the way he sounded, I kind of asked him, I said, is that as good as it gets? He goes, Chris, not even close. Of course that's as good as it gets. <laughs> this is a guy who hit 394. This is a guy who, you know, eight, eight, eight batting titles. Right. There was a moment that they weren't keeping score that might have been his favorite moment on a baseball field because it was with Ted Williams. Right. So that's why I think there's an affinity to certain guys in this game. It's because of not only their abilities, but who they are. Right, right, and the, and that and that's what's you know so fascinating about about the, and what brought me to that conversation in particular because you know it's it's something where you you have all this and, and forgive the term but you, you kind of have this this library of 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 conversations with these guys and is there one theme you know we talked about a little bit how you know they don't like to be asked the cliche questions and things like that but 
you know, the modern baseball player really is is not a not a I guess as riveting of an interview, right? So, yes. yeah. And by the way, I've I've told guys that because they've had a microphone under their nose their whole life. We've heard them all speak. Right. So there's no magic. There's no mysticism. Like the curtain's been pulled back. There's no Oz. Right. And it's not a knock. It's just, by the way, guys had to work in the off season. You know, they have stories of. Furizudo was making suits with Yogi Berra. Jackie Robinson was selling TVs. Right. Um, there's something. There's a. There's a mysticism to that that doesn't exist today. And and look, some guys are certainly still interesting, but we've heard them. Right. These are guys. A lot of these guys that we we just haven't heard. And I think that's a big part of it. Is it's the microphone under their nose thing uh, didn't exist to the level that it does today. Right. And with social media and everything, it's kind of like they're on the yeah. clock all the time, right? Yep. Yeah, that, yep. that's what I've always found fascinating is that you, now it's almost like, do you get the impression that these these and the, you know uh, these older guys are almost anxious, like they, they want to tell these things? Because, you know, yeah. the, the younger guys, I mean, they're, 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 like you said, I mean, if I hear how, much, how I need to execute pitches, like, more often, like, I mean, come on. Right. But at the same right. time, like, you know, yeah. when you're talking to, I had never heard Bo Jackson just, just talk on that on that level or even your first interview with Stan was just it was just so casual like do you feel like they they yearn for this a little bit yeah that's the goal I, I look there was a guy named Ernie Coy <laughs> nobody <laughs> uh, there's nobody listening and you can go ask everybody you know Ernie Coy and Ernie Coy I'm gonna tell you something I spoke to Ernie Coy so this is where you get into that whole idea of what's different today than what used to be. Swear to God, this is Ernie Coy. One night in the life of Ernie Coy, the baseball player. 1938, first night game in Brooklyn, lights on. Johnny Vandermeer, second no-hitter of the only guy to ever throw two in a row. And Ernie Coy raced Jesse Owens that night in 1938 because Ernie Coy was considered the fastest guy in baseball. So they brought Jesse Owens in to Brooklyn that night to race Ernie Coy. That's Ernie Coy. So, yeah, Ernie Coy wanted as Ernie Coy was 80-something years old when I spoke to him many years ago. But, hell, yeah, he wanted to tell that story. That's awesome. And, and his story is newspapers got it wrong. He said, I, I think he got, I think it was a five-yard head start on Jesse Owens to run 100 across mm -hmm. the outfield. He said, ah, oh, the newspapers made it sound like Jesse got me good. He goes, he didn't get me good. He got me by a step. Damn right Ernie Coyd is home in some small town <laughs> in Texas wanted to tell that story. No doubt in my mind, Ernie Coyd was waiting for a guy like me to call him for 40 years yeah. to tell that story. That's that's awesome. I mean, that's and that's really, you know, that's what... Uh that are there any episodes like that like you know you talked about some that are coming out but is there is there one in particular like hey you know if you listen to just one episode of of this project of this thing you're going on one yeah. episode is there one that we should be looking out for so so one that's already out is the film i'm telling you he, he look i don't want to get he calls me a and for anybody who lived in the northeast that's like that. There's no more affirmation. He called you a what? He called you a what? A huckleberry. He literally says to me, "What's that?" He, he called you a huckleberry. A hu so Phil Rizzuto, that was his thing on TV. He was around the Yankees for think of this seventy seven decades. He started playing in the forties. He called games to the nineties. I was at Phil Rizzuto day. This is God's honest truth. I was at Phil Rizzuto Day when they gave him a cow, like the holy cow thing was sort of the Phil Rizzuto thing. But it was the day that Tom Seaver won his 300th game in a White Sox uniform. I was there to see Seaver. I got the benefit of Phil Rizzuto Day, and I got to talk to Phil Rizzuto about being a Phil Rizzuto Day. But Huckleberry is what he called people. Oh, you, Bill White, the day where, oh, Bill White, you Huckleberry. At the end, he can't believe he did 35-plus minutes with me. He said, I thought you said this was going to be 15 minutes, and he's laughing. And he called me a huckleberry. And, <laughs> and that's affirmation. Like, oh, my God, Phil Rizzuto just called me huckleberry. Eldon Auker is a guy coming up. Again, he's got unbelievable stories. Like, literally a guy who played. Tommy Henrik was a guy who was on the field 
when Lou Gehrig gave his speech, but also when Babe Ruth gave his speech when he retired, to Tommy Henrich, uh, Carl Erskine, like I said, just a new one with Carl Erskine. I'll give you one. You want to be blown away? This, uh, If you're not blown away by anything, I'll give you the thing that you're going to repeat to somebody, which will prove you're blown away. Carl Erskine told me that when he was pitching in the Dodger organization, 27 minor league teams. If mm. you're a starting pitcher, there's only four of you in the majors. 27 minor league teams. So you, you know why you never got iced? You know why you never were in the trainer's room? You're all on one-year contracts, and you never wanted to know. Think about that. 27. There's a there's a Life magazine picture from 1948 where it's all, all these guys in plain white uniforms. I swear. Go Google it tonight. They're the Dodgers minor leagues. There's like 300 guys that you've seen this picture. God. It was taken from a tower. And it's all these guys like doing calisthenics. And it's 300 <laughs> guys trying to get 25 spots. It's And Erskine tells the story of what that's like to know that Someone's breathing down your neck every day in that world. Right. One so right Erskine, in front of you, one right behind you. Be, right. I'll tell you this just quickly. I taped something with Joe Morgan about two months ago, and I was told, ah, Joe doesn't like this stuff. Joe doesn't really do this. Joe, you know, Joe had sort of gotten away from the game. But, look, people either know him as a player or know him as a guy who did games with John Miller. Right. I don't care how you know him. We did over an hour. Like we did an hour. We started to talk about it. He played for the Colt 45s. He met Jackie Robinson one time, and he tells that story. And it's just sort of like the moment you're talking about when guys go, oh, you know what? I think I am going to invest in this whatever time. When I had asked him about the Colt 45s and Jackie Robinson, then we did 40-plus minutes after that because I think he knew that I was invested in the conversation, and it wasn't just a – let me let me let me find out if I could get Joe Morgan on. It became let me find out if Joe Morgan really is interested in this. Right now, and that's and that's what one thing that I I think I'll vouch for as somebody who listens to it. Um, I will vouch for it. It's a it is a conversation, and it is something that you can just tell these guys are invested in it, and. And that's what I think that listeners are are going to get that they that they simply you know, honestly they just don't get other places. So it's not just the names, you know. So. Right. I, I'll also tell you one of the things that I, I sort of and I don't know why, you know, Whitey's not in the greatest of health, but I would call back Jim Bouton who just passed mm-hmm. uh, not too long ago. That he wrote ball four, played for the Yankees, and. He was sort of ostracized for a while. Uh, he was going through some health issues, and we never did, we never taped anything. But I'd call every three or four months just to see how he was doing. And I did it with Whitey, and I did it with Phil Rizzuto at the end. And it wasn't to intrude, It was, and it wasn't to do another. I did it with uh, Ralph Branca became what I would call a good baseball friend. I would just call and ask how they're doing. And, you know, I, I don't know. You know, I think we all have our things. I think some people are a little uncomfortable around older people, and some people aren't. I've never been. Um, right. I sort of, I know that as these guys pass, like Tom Seaver, I don't know if you saw last, last year, his family basically said Tom was pulled back from public life. He's got medical issues. Bud Harrelson is a shortstop for the Mets. He's got things that he's not even capable of doing one of these. And I just sort of, it, you, I realized pretty quickly, I wish there were guys that I doubled back with a few years after I did them. But I would just call in, you know, the late two, 2008, 2010, 12, check in on guys. And some guys became sort of in my little world of Frank every three or four months to say hello to, to him and his wife. And Jim Bouton, it got to the point where Jim's wife said Jim's not going to come to the phone. Lindy McDaniel was another right. guy who had medical stuff. but but And they were sort of embarrassed. They didn't want to do the conversation because they didn't think they I was like, I'm not even calling for that. But right. I, I just have had an appreciation I think that when these people go, their stories are gone forever, which is why whatever your interest is, like we should be documenting more, not less. Right. It's almost like a, like a time capsule or a history project in a way. No doubt. And I, I'll tell you the one that I'm like, I don't proud 
there'll be an episode coming up with Rachel Robinson. Same thing. I've mm-hmm. called her a number of times just to say hello. But we did one that I got a call from the her people, the Robinson, Jackie Robinson Foundation, two days after we did it. And she enjoyed it enough where she asked for copies for their Robinson Foundation archives. That's and great. I found out once... One of them is sitting somewhere, maybe in the Smithsonian, according to what they told me. We burned a CD and sent it. So because she she enjoyed that one enough. And you go, I I don't know what it was. I, I, as a Brooklyn Dodger fan kid, I think she appreciated that. But it, but I just think that she was she told one or two stories, I think, that she hadn't told in a while. And one of them was about their son uh, who had some issues growing up and and. And I just think, again, when you when you strike that, I felt okay to call her six months later or a year later just to say hello and thank her not only for her time again, but just to see how she was doing. And that sort of continues to this day. Yeah, I mean, and that's and and so that's that's what I think I, I can appreciate. And I think that real real students and historians of the game are, and just people who enjoy it are, are really going to appreciate yeah. that tact and that Thanks. and that level of discretion. And I look more I, look again i would encourage anybody uh if you whether whether it's baseball or football or whether it's something non-sports related um if you have the wherewithal and a part of it used to be the fun for me was the chase like how the hell, how am i going to find a guy named ernie coy right well i don't know let's go find him and that i'd like the chase but i just think more needs to be documented not less you know um and again it doesn't matter what your interest is but if, if but if somebody's doing things like this it's one thing to talk about baseball and that's great and i and i'll listen to guys who do that but i, I sort of like the historical i'll gravitate towards an interview or a conversation about a subject more than i just will talking about the subject and i think a lot of people are like that so if this is again if we can find our one percent of the 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 podcast world with something like this it's just available you know, right. and, I, and I hope other people sort of just find out what interests them and speak to people who you know are not going to be here forever. And if they go, the stories are going to go with them. Track them down, hunt them down, and, you know, grab a microphone. The technology is pretty easy now. You know better than me. The technology is easy enough now where you can find those guys who want that phone call. There's a really good chance you can get some great stuff. Yeah, I, I, I think it's great. I think the pro, I think what you're doing and what you have what you have been doing, what you're currently doing is really an invaluable, invaluable uh, service, really, to, to the baseball world, because as we as the modern game becomes more and more data driven and more and more numbers driven, you know, there is there is an argument to be made and there is there is a real part of the game that needs to be preserved. And what better way to do it than with those who lived it? So. Um, Chris- Casey Stengel lost his job as the manager of the Yankees because he didn't hand the baseball to Whitey Ford in the game seven in 1960. Mm-hmm. So, like, to hear that story, all the analytics would tell you, I don't know, well, what am I going to do? I don't know. Whitey Ford still holds the record for most wins as a World Series pitcher. Of course, you give the ball to Whitey Ford. I don't care what the computer says. Right. <laughs> what 12 guys in the cubicle say, there's got to be a moment where you just go, well, of course I'm going to do that. Of course that guy's <laughs> going to get the at-bat. Um, and I don't, I don't crap on analytics as, a, as its own separate entity, but I, I've asked a bunch of guys in the last 10, 12 years, if you can't check a pulse rate or, or a heart rate, do you want the ball hit to you at shortstop in, in that moment? Do you want the AB? Do you want to be coming out? Do you want, do you want to be the guy that the bullpen gate swings open? There's no number that can tell me that more than your heart rate or your pulse. So until you give me that, along with every other piece of analytics and, you know, programming zeros and ones, you know, I, Brian Kenny, we talked about it one day on the air. If you don't believe in clutch, I got to be honest, I can't have much of a conversation with you because I don't think guys are created equally. And I don't care what the ream of paper says. I kind of look at what does he do when the moment matters? And I think that's what you're talking about. Right. I like guys who still want to have that conversation about, yeah, I get it. I know that there are things that we can talk about now that we didn't 10, 15, 50 years ago, but there's still an eyeball part of it. And I have great respect for the guys that I believe have really good eyes when it comes to who can do something at a given moment. 
That's yeah, and that that's an excellent bow to put on it. Chris Chris Domino, his podcast is the Hardball is hard. It's just called Hardball. Um, Hardball I, podcast. Hardball I, podcast. Yeah, you might get to the. Yeah, it's funny. I outlasted Chris Matthews, the other guy, <laughs> at Hardball the TV show. So Hardball podcast is you can find it on on any any streaming service. Um, when episodes come up, if you subscribe, you'll get the ding, and they'll be there. And listen, I appreciate your time, and I I, I love talking to guys who love the game and have an appreciation for the game, not just here in Atlanta, but certainly big picture when we talk about the game with a capital G. Anybody who's who I think has that. I'm there every time somebody asks to do one of these. That's it. And I appreciate, and I in turn appreciate your time because I'll tell you something, you know, I'll, I'll reiterate what I said earlier. It's a, it is a true service uh, to, to the game itself, what you're doing. And, and we very much appreciate it. Um, thank you so thank much you. for I your time. It. Absolutely. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good night. Appreciate it. You too.